0: You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network.
1: Hi, everybody. This is Jason Liebig, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast.
0: Welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. I am your host, Curtis Bindley, And this is a Generation X interview with editor Jason Liebig. If you're just joining us now, know that this year, 2019, is the 25th anniversary of Generation X. And I am doing my part to celebrate because I loved the title and I don't think anyone else is going to celebrate. So I've collected a series of interviews with people who have worked on Generation X over its five-year span. And so far, I've t- we've talked to Scott Labdell. Richard Starkings, and Jay Ferber. And so in this interview, we have editor Jason Liebig, who edited Generation X as an assistant editor back in the Scott Liddell, Chris Bicello days and moving forward through the through the James Robinson era and the Larry Hama era, and then became a full editor just in time to usher in the whole Counter-X reshuffling, uh, you know, when, when all of the X titles went through a big overhaul at that time. In this interview we talk about just the part of his career when he was the assistant editor and he's got some great stories to sh- uh, to share with us. But just before we move on I want to give a quick plug to our Patreon site head over to patreon.com/thunderquack and you can support this podcast and all of the other podcasts that are on the Thunderquack podcast network by just giving a few bucks. If you do, I will post, I have posted already and will continue to post some exclusive interviews that you will be able to hear months before I release them to the general public on the regular podcast feed. So check those out uh, and you will uh, hopefully find them very, very interesting. And in the future, you can stay tuned for the remainder of this year. I will continue to post more Generation X interviews. Uh, Next month, I got a special treat, one that you probably will not expect So I hope that you will tune in for that one. I'll be releasing it on the 25th to coincide with the 25th anniversary of Generation X. Enough from me. Let's carry on over to our interview with Jason Liebig. I think that the earliest... Comic, the ear- earliest Generation X comic that I see you credited for when I flip through my issues yes. is Generation X number 20. Is that right? That sounds about right, yeah. And you were associate editor at, or assistant editor at the time. Assist-
1: yeah, assistant editor. I was the assistant uh, under Bob Harris and Mark Powers
0: on the X-Men group, yes, at the time. Now, can you tell me what is the... Editorial structure. I think out of in, in comic books, editorial is always just kind of a vague. Like they they make decisions or tell people what to do, uh, but we don't really know what what <laughs> editors do. How do, What's the breakdown between editor, assistant editor, associate editor, all of that kind of stuff? Especially in the '90s here when you were working,
1: Curtis. That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, I've tried to describe it because when you tell someone you're an editor. They think, oh, you're a you're a spell checker." And I was like, "No, we had a spell checker. I mean I, well, I had a proofreader that I actually handed things off to. Um, so and you know who was my proofreader? Oh, actually, for a while, um she would come in and and work, uh, Flo Steinberg, the amazing legendary Flo Steinberg, who yeah. sadly passed away last year, was our proofreader, so I would bring things out to her. And uh, after leaving Marvel comics i did I did on one occasion uh, try to get some freelance work as a proofreader. And what I realized is a comic book editor is nothing like a proofreader. A proofreader is a far more skilled job than the uh, the sort of old, uh, the Wild West uh, job. No, but uh, um, the, easiest, the easiest way that I can describe at least what a, a comic book editor was at Marvel and certainly in the X office at the time, you can equate to a term that a lot of people happen to know nowadays for a lot of various reasons is as a showrunner. Okay. And really, the editor was the showrunner. And, uh, you know, I, I break it down as like, listen, we hired and fired all the writers and artists. And at our best, um, we were like a head coach as well. Um, but we, you know, where sometimes we simply guided stories, uh, you know, some sometimes we were just referees with our writers. But when you're working on a franchise, um, it required... Well, if you wanted to handle it that way, and these are choices, um, it required a certain degree of coordination and much to the chagrin of different people, depending on who you ask, you know, it it required some pushback and direction and sometimes too strong at times, sometimes not strong enough, I suppose. Hmm. But at its best, for me, creatively, it was like being a head coach. And, uh, you know, and so uh, because I got to work with great people and so. I was never going to be as good of a writer as, say, I don't know, Joe Kelly or, or whoever. But I, but if they were bouncing things off of me, I might know. Like no one who coaches LeBron James or Michael Jordan is, is as good a basketball player as Michael Jordan or LeBron James. But if they're a good coach, they find ways to make that player better. And I think that that is a part of the job of an editor is to hopefully make your talent a little better than they were. And you remind them of things, you know, and you, you – Lift them up where they're, you know, where they're not. That's the ideal, of course. And there's all the negatives, too, where you're just getting in their way, you know, which is also a thing. And you're stopping them from doing the things that their vision, their creative vision says they want to do. And, you know, and so that's the, the that's the other part of it as well. So there's lots.
0: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Now, what what's the breakdown of these other roles in editorial?
1: Um, that's a good question, too. When I when I was hired. Boy, I was so fortunate. I had such a unique seat because I was hired as the assistant editor on the X-Men group, um, the primary X-Men titles, uh, which was Uncanny, X-Men, Gen X, Wolverine. I think Cable was in there as well at the time. I think that was the family titles we had in the main office. The sort of secondary, what I call the tertiary books, um, were sort of split around two or three of their offices at that time. Uh, But I I was more than just hired as the assistant to the X-Men editor, which was Mark Powers at the time. But I was also sort of hired as assistant to Bob Harris, who was the editor in chief. And he had just left being the group editor of the X-Men himself. So he still kept a firm eye on the X-Men because at the time it was Marvel's number one franchise. It was the most important franchise for Marvel at the time. And uh, they they were the books driving the line, driving the editorial. So when I was hired as the assistant on the X-Men, I, uh, I sat in Bob Harris's corner office. Mark Powers literally sat right next to Bob. I sat on the other end of the office, and it was very cramped, and he was very uh, accommodating for an editor-in-chief to keep these two uh, these two rambunctious uh, young guys in, in, in the office with him. We had a lot of fun, and uh, you know I've got a million stories and a million memories. And uh, So but getting back to your question, um, an assistant editor – assists you know and that that can mean any number of things um ideally you pick up the weaknesses of what your editor is missing and in some cases that can be organizational some cases that can be you know almost like the job of a siri you're there to remind them of things you're there to take care of some of their busy work that they don't want to take care of um it can be you know it can be everything from oh make photocopies or make sure back in the day make sure these pages get fedexed off to someone and mark powers and i had a great relationship i do feel like where some of my weaknesses were his that those were his strengths um, he was actually a really good organizationally i happen to be weak or i think <laughs> um, but we worked really well together i pushed him in different ways and we uh, you know we just had a lot of fun working together on the books as stressful as it could be um, i i was very good at creatively problem solving things when things went wrong and uh, coming up with solutions and also getting on the phone with creators, you know, when there wasn't time and, and trying to hash things out. And, uh, and so the role of an associate editor is you, you you've, you've gone up from, from assistant and an associate actually will edit their own books. Okay. So they'll actually have a book, whereas an assistant, you're never the final decision maker on a book technically. Um, and as an associate that you then, you sort of overseeing your own books, uh, In my case, um, I went straight from assistant to full editor, um, which, you know, wasn't unprecedented, but it happened, you know, at the time. And so then when I became a full editor, um, we we sort of brought all the X-Men family books into the office of Mark and myself. And so I was sort of, you know, I was sort of assistanting on the X-Men books and the X-Men family under Bob and Mark. And then when we brought them all together, that was just Mark and I's uh, purview. Still with Bob, you know, looking in very closely. And for a time, even Chris Claremont, because he was our, what was he, our editorial director for a time, which was a unique experience in itself. And yeah. I have a ton of stories and memories from
0: that. <laughs> so, What what period was that with Chris Claremont? You know,
1: um, I probably should have sat down with a calendar and tried to figure it all out before we got on this, on this uh, podcast. <laughs> I want to say... If uh, if I'm guessing, I want to say that Chris was brought in around '98, maybe '97, um, '98, somewhere around there, okay. I think. And it was complicated. Look, here's the thing: I, you know, I love Chris Claremont, and it was a joy to work with him. He hadn't been working on the X-Men books, but then he was being brought back in. Marvel was under bankruptcy at the time, and uh, you know, Marvel's bankruptcy was very complicated. It wasn't because Marvel was losing money as such; it's because The the people who owned the company, uh, the the Ron Perlman's, they had leveraged Marvel to the tune of $750 million. Oh, man. And yeah, and so that wasn't Marvel Comics borrowing that money. That wasn't Marvel license. That was literally Marvel, the ownership leveraging the value of Marvel, three quarters of a billion dollars, and then Marvel not being able to pay. They were making enough money to pay everybody and pay for everything they were doing, but they weren't able to pay the interest on a three quarters of a billion dollar debt. Big surprise.
0: Yeah, right. (laughs)
1: Wow. they also made a bad licensing deal with toy biz, but I'm not going to go into that where all the money they would have been making in the nineties on the toys. They didn't make any of it. Brutal, it's crazy. Uh, yeah, it is brutal. Um, so yeah, so, um, so Chris was brought in and you know, it's, uh, when you, when Chris Claremont is overseeing X-Men books and he was really supposed to, you know, he was supposed to sort of be a little more hands off on the X-Men cause we we'd brought him back in for a while to work on the X-Men and, it's complicated when a guy who's so invested and so smart and so damn frustratingly, you know, um, good Yeah. <laughs> at times. And, you know, and to, and just frustratingly like ver- verbose at times. It was complicated. And, uh, but, and then we also had a really great uh, art director at the time, Michael Golden. So he had these like just legends working with us. And, you know, I liked working with them all. But don't get me wrong, there were times like Chris came into my office and I just hid everything, you know, as much as I could, because I didn't want him to know what we were doing with his children. (laughs) You know, he goes, what are you doing with my children? Nothing, Chris. We're not even publishing the next one book this (laughs) month. So uh, and, you know, people ask me about my time in comics a lot, you know, and one of the great joys of, of my experience is the people I got to work with, certainly in editorial, but like some of the creators and getting to work with Chris Claremont was a unique joy and uh, a real rare pleasure and he is you know he is a gentleman i mean he's when you first meet him you you, if you don't quite get where he comes from he can be a bit standoffish but but and i'm saying that from the 90s because i feel like boy he has completely come out of his shell i mean he's like warm fuzzy now Um, i think he you know it's because he had kids and raised kids but at the time he was just a writer who had been writing in his office without seeing people for 20 years you know and then and uh, he didn't quite understand why we didn't all understand everything he was understanding. But um, I'm still friends with Chris when I see him at cons. You know, we have great conversations. And uh, he's responsible for so much of the language of superheroes of today. You know, if you yeah. you look at so much, I mean, look at Heroes when Heroes was good. that you know, the first season of
0: Heroes. Right. That's yeah. all
1: Chris Claremont <laughs> stuff. All that stuff is Chris Claremont.
0: Right, right.
1: And I mean, my God, you know, there's, I feel like there's a lot of talk about the old uh, X Men animated series, the Fox one, and that's just, they just blatantly just did all of Chris's stories. You know?
0: Right? Yep, so, totally.
1: <laughs> so uh, I, I know we're not here to talk about Chris Claremont and the X Men, but anyway, I digress to, to quote uh, Peter David.
0: Now, so when you first came into the X Office here, it, it, this was the post onslaught aftermath.
1: It was right around Ants' on, onslaught. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. what
0: was the, what were the X offices like at this time? Just dealing with uh, that, you know, Marvel universe shaking series. A bunch of these other titles had been shifted shift off to the Image guys, and but the X Office is kind of still like they're ramping up for the next thing already. Operation Zero Tolerance.
1: Yeah. Um, well, when I came in was before uh, Heroes were born. Not long before Heroes were born. Okay. Um, so, yeah, when, and I actually, in my, my job interview, how I kind of got hired was, uh, was talking about Onslaught and how I thought it wasn't that good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, Bob Harris, a, a, as part of the, our interview, he asked me, what do you think makes a good comic and what do you think makes a bad comic? And I, I, I paused for, I don't remember how long, but then I, I sort of gave him uh, my thoughts, my, my just very honest thoughts about what I thought made a good comic and in that particular case i didn't try to break it down vaguely i gave him an example of a comic i just read a superman comic um that i just read and it might have been action comics presents or something but it was mark wade had written it and i don't recall the specifics of it there are too many of them but i do recall that he had put superman somehow he had some villain had put superman's consciousness in this young boy who was institutionalized and who happened to be obsessed with superman and I thought, wow, you know, I, and I, I was telling Bob this, and I said, wow. I said, you know, the problem with Superman that every writer has is how do you deal with him, right? He's, he's invulnerable. You know, he can push planets around. And anybody who's worked in comics, anybody who's tackled Superman, these are the questions. These are sort of the cliche things that they talk about, you know, because we all do. And I thought, wow, I go, Mark had a really great solution for Superman, for this, at least for this story. I mean, this isn't something you could do, but I thought, oh, that was very clever um, because it also put Superman. Uh, in this position as as sort of he now has to protect this kid right so he he has to be very careful about what he does and and it puts him in such a great it gives him such a great problem to solve and and it sort of cuts to the root of who Clark is and who you know Cowell is and all these things I thought wow I I thought it was really great Uh, I thought it was a great approach and so I said that and then I said and then I said, you know, what makes a bad comic? I don't know. You know, I, I'm looking at what you guys are doing right now with Onslaught. And I go, what is it? It's like Professor X, you know, now becomes like a supervillain. You know, and I said, honestly, listen, I'll tell you what, uh, you know, DC, DC, like last year turned Hell Jordan into Parallax and he's this big villain with his big armor and everything. And I didn't think it was that good of an idea then. And when I look at Onslaught, I said, my first impression of it, it's just bad Parallax. And I don't think it's very good. <laughs> and now that's what I'm telling that to Bob Harris, who's overseeing the X Men books. Yeah, great. Right? Right. <laughs> and so it may be the ballsiest thing I've ever done. Maybe, probably not. But anyway, so, but I'm like, and you know, he was quiet for a second. And because I, I said that was my first impression, I'll never forget because I, I just felt like I thought I heard, you know, the, the angels sing, but he said, you know, that was my first impression of it too.
0: <laughs> and so I was like, oh, okay,
1: you know, and then I got a call like a week later that said, oh, you've been hired. And I was like, and you know, when you grow up loving the X-Men and uh, you find out you're being hired to work creatively on the X-Men, it is unlike any call you ever get.
0: Oh, yeah, um, right.
1: And it was, an ex- it was an extraordinary call. And uh, I don't think I ever stopped being grateful. I don't think I – don't get me wrong. I complained and I had bad days. But I was never cynical about where i was or what i was doing hmm. um i was i never felt i was bigger than the job or the characters of the books i always felt like i was there to really serve the books and serve the characters and you know um and it was thrilling you know i mean it's uh you know i was in a couple of meetings with stan lee and i had been at marvel a few years you know and i, I just i was sitting there having I mean, worked on the x-men ostensibly you know worked with all sorts of legends but i'm still sitting there in this meeting. I'll never forget it. I'm like just sitting there looking around the room and I'm like, fuck. Yeah. I'm like, this is Stan Lee. (laughs) And I think a lot of people did that no matter how long they've been, even Bob, you know, people who've been there for a long time, you know, but uh, it was, it was quite thrilling. So anyway, so getting back to your question, which was onslaught heroes are born. Because one of the other things is because I was also Bob's sort of assistant in the office when uh, heroes are born dropped, I was sort of involved in that, too. I was getting the scripts and everything when they would deem to send them and uh, and I was privy to all the contractual crap that was going on and the the fighting and the you know and and just everything so what it was going on and the you know, and some of the image guys sort of violating their contract <laughs> um, Rob um, who I love <laughs> like I love Rob, but come on, man, you like. Uh, I could get into the Heroes of Born contract and how <laughs> they basically they sold they sold the some execa goods and then they basically went back on it almost immediately.
0: But anyway, <laughs> we, that's a conversation for another time. And we sh- that would be fascinating to have. But let's yeah. Stick and that. so zero
1: tolerance and you know zero tolerance. You know, it was Scott Scottsdale was still the guy in the books at that point, but he was coming to the end of his run. I think around zero tolerance. Yep and scott uh, had recently gotten married and you know i mean i think he was distracted i remember you know trying to get script this is probably later right? so i remember trying to get script pages out of him he's in paris you know with his wife and we're trying to, this is when he was writing fantastic four for heroes return
0: oh, okay
1: i know joe materrera you know was 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 finally leaving and everything so i, I sort of think the sort of creative alchemy that brought us age of apocalypse you know which was you know which blew the doors off of everything certainly mm-hmm. sales wise but it was also creatively really this wild thing yeah i don't know if it made sense but anyway i think it did <laughs> yeah yeah it was uh, no it's like and so uh you know so when things are sort of coming to their end run you know tensions are a little high although scott was always delightful in his own way although very like he you know it's funny I went to a lunch once with Claremont and, and Scott and they're very different, but yet they're both very just cocky. Isn't the right word because cocky sort of implies something else. There's almost like an arrogance about it, but it's that even that's it's, 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 all those things almost put too rough an edge on it. It's a very fine tooth sort of like when you're doing that and, and you sort of really are at the height of your powers, there is a bit of a, you, you know, everything's fine jason you know it's just like but it's not fine right right you know i mean I, I experienced that a lot and i went look and i you know i i respected it and uh like even when i worked with warren ellis he said something to me he goes don't worry jason it's all going to work out and i was like <laughs> okay because i'm like you know warren i go th- this issue of x-force nothing happens in it all the characters are sort of knocked unconscious in san francisco at the beginning and and they wake up, and then there's sort of a battle for twenty pages, and then they all end up unconscious again. I think it's San Francisco. I said it's not much of an issue of a comic, you know. And he goes, "It's okay, Jason. It's all going to work. It's all going to make sense in the end." It was like, "Okay,
0: you're the wizard." That's awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, and that's you know those are. I'm sure that's pretty close to the, the actual words that were spoken. And if they're not you know my memory is you know the, these are 20 year old stories um, yeah. but it but it is essentially the spirit uh, of the thing um one of my favorite conversations ever like chris was first coming back scott lobdo was still working on the book so we just went out to lunch and as a fan as as a creative person you know, these are the questions if you love the x men these are the things that you love. And of course we had two great voices of the X-Men, two great writers. We had Scott Lobdell and Chris Claremont. which was, look, I was a fly on the wall of one of the great, you know, X-Men meetings of all time in that, in that particular afternoon. We're at this little Italian restaurant. And toward the end of lunch, the conversation became the mutant registration, Act, right? Which was a thing in the comics at the time. And, mm-hmm. and so it's like, and so someone posited, it might've been me. They said, well, if, mutants really existed in the real world. And these are great questions to ask. My God, if you, if you literally had babies born that basically essentially had shotguns for hands you know, or eyes, it's like, how could you not have a mutant registration act? And I think Scott Labdell was on the side where in the real world you would. Chris Claremont being this very much idealistic guy, he just, you know, with our constitution, you wouldn't. And so, you know, very optimistic you know and so it was fascinating to see these two guys who had spent years both of them thinking about these questions thinking about these characters you know creating their worlds and you know and seeing these questions hashed out and and being a part of the conversation in little bits um with such a great joy because you know when you're working on these characters and the, there are these fundamental questions that you do sort of go back to and it is and they're important you know you can't think about them every issue or every day or whatever but you do go back and it's like well if the, you know it's it's great if this was real how would people behave what what would they say how would they feel you know how would the world accept them you know and it's a you know and it's a it's a line you know that you can't always jump across but it's an important thing because you want to keep them as rooted in reality as possible
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, because in the real I suppose, you know, it's a, look, the amount of adventures, these characters, they'd all be dead, you know, because their bodies would just break apart, except for Wolverine, <laughs> you know, I mean, and not, not everyone else has a healing factor, you know, these yeah. poor bastards in these fights, they would all die. So yeah, so where were we? We're, uh, we're at the sort of organic sentinels, right? Is that where we're at? That's right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Well, I just want to know, when you when a huge company-wide story like this happens especially this one yes uh, with is so key to x-men in particular yes um, how do you wrangle all of the writers together to make sure that all of their individual stories are playing ball
1: um well the, the one of the big things and they're still doing it um, because I, I, I occasionally read stories about it, or i see you know i follow adam Kubert or whatever and i see you know we're talking and I see that they've gone to a creative conference. Creative conference. Again, it's uh, one of the coolest things. I remember going to my first creative conference. We had Jeff Loeb and Scott Labdell. We ran it. So, and we all go to like some conference center, like in New Jersey or Long Island or upstate New York. And uh, you spend a weekend, you stay in hotel there and you have meetings all day. And it's about hashing out what comes next. And. You know, there's, there, there's food, but there's drinking at night. And But it's, you know, there's sometimes guest speakers come in um, to sort of just talk about, I don't know, fundamental story structure or whatever. But mainly, it's a bunch of fabulously created people, not just the writers, at least at the time. I mean, I think they're still bringing in the artists. So you get everybody involved in the line, and you sort of hash out where do we see the Marvel Universe going in the next year. And it's it, 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 to a degree, it's an open forum, it's a discussion, and you, you hash it out. And you know, some people come with Bibles and pitches, and you know, some people just come to sort of say, "Well, that's not going to work" or whatever, you know. And some people just come to make jokes or you know, tell great stories about Neil Adams, you know, mm-hmm. and Alex Toth or whatever, you know. No, but it's a, and so that's how you hash that. And sometimes you do come with a big agenda. Uh, sometimes there's salespeople there. I mean, look, the reality of the '90s at that certain point very much driven on uh, these crossovers and everything in these events. I don't think much has changed back then. uh, You know, certainly with Marvel comics, the X-Men group, we were, we were driven by events. Sales were driven by events, retail, the comic retail trade was driven by events. Um, And, you know, certainly in the wake of age of apocalypse where you saw, you know, look, I, I was, I was a lowly, I was a marketing rep at DC comics when age of apocalypse happened and, you know, of course, I talked to one of my marketing guys, Yeah, we're canceling all the Xbox. We're going mm-hmm. to cancel <laughs> all the Xbox. And I'm like, OK, they're not really canceling. <laughs> I, I, you know, like I was a marketing guy. I was like, well, they're not really canceling all the Xbox. But I, ne- I, I think there was like a mailer sent out to retailers, which was this. It was whatever you're ordering for Uncanny and X-Men, you should like double that for Astonishing and whatever the other X-Men book or whatever was, the two main X-Men. And for all your other tertiary books, like X, what is it, Cable, and et cetera, et cetera, you know, Generation X, you should increase your numbers to Uncanny and X-Men levels. Now, oh, Uncanny oh. and X-Men were the top-selling books in comics. Yeah. And that's what, that's what they suggested people do. And that's what happened, which is madness, which is madness. Um, they took the entire line to... The, the, what the number one and number two books were selling in the in the business at the time. They took the entire X Men line with Age of Apocalypse, and you know the, the the most cynical of people could say something about it. But my God, it's an impressive feat. Yeah. And, and it already even then the, the the retail trade was pretty cynical, so it was pretty profound. Anyway, anyway, so um you sit down at these creative conferences and. You know, you sort of do have to plot around events and stuff and figure out what's going to be the most exciting place to take things. And and hopefully, your writers, though, um, who, you know, and your editors in each group have been working on coming up with things they want to do, you know, with the characters and places they want to take them and uh, things they would like to try. And, you know, and when that's working really well, it's writers got a great idea. The editor, you know, they bounce it off the editor. The editor says, well, yeah, that sounds great. How about this? And then sometimes, it's it's not as smooth um, where someone pitches something and it's just not very good. And then, you know, and at least at the time, again, from what I understand my conversations with the editors is a lot less of a showrunner in, in 2019 than they were in 1997. I think things have moved away from that a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, but they're still having creative conferences. So, you know, I, I suspect the power of an editor May, may be diminished in 2019 or at least the function of an editor may be diminished that's what someone who's still pretty powerful in the industry told me was hmm.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Okay. yeah but it, it's you know i i can say without a doubt that you know th- these things if look are creatively joyous and you you know and getting to sit next to adam kubert or jeff lober or larry hama and talk about these characters and what might be fun fun for us fun for the readers um that's a lot of fun um, executing it can be a lot of work and getting things out on time can be a lot of work or in some cases impossible um you know and there are little heartbreaks along the way you know joe Matarera's last issue of uncanny x-men was uncanny 350 and the guy was just playing so much Ultima Online, he just couldn't finish the pages. And so you have to hire someone. Look, you have to hire someone that isn't Joe Madureira to fill in pages. And it's you know that's not way that's not how you want the last issue to go. No, nope. you know, his last issue, it's terrible, and it is terrible. And but the book already shipped a month late, so it's like you know what do you what do you left him to? Yeah so although i will say joe was consistent when battle chasers came out you know it's like his books came out months and months well, that's right they sure that's did right. <laughs> and at that point you know that was costing him tens of thousands of dollars out of his own pocket you know yeah. with us it was just he was getting his page written no matter what but like boy with battle chasers you know him spending too much time walking his dog or whatever i mean you know again it's you know it's real money at that point because yeah, it is
0: that's right anyway well let's let's take our conversation back to Generation X here, and I want to yeah. know about um this period of Generation X after Scott left and James Robinson came on That's and and then uh, and then Larry Hammack came on so can you tell me what was it like in the X office talking about Generation X after Scott left?
1: Yeah, and I think that was also how long was was Chris Bocello?
0: He, did, yeah, did Chris
1: leave about that time? He
0: did. He left a few issues later as well. So Hamas started yeah. and you had no artist, no regular artist.
1: The time that Generation X launched with Chris Pacello and and Scott, you know, you look, you look, go back to that first issue yeah. and boy, it's hard to say that was anything less than innovative and explosive oh, yeah. and exciting. You know? um, Chris really was at the height of his powers. Chris Pacello is just an incredible artist. And Scott, You know, was really just saying, you know, it's like the way we've done the X Men, we can do them differently. You know, this isn't New Mutants, this isn't, this is going to be this other thing where these kids are going to, you know, be very cool in a different way, in a, you know, in a very real way, and we're going to create mutants that aren't like mutants you've ever seen before. And uh, it was just incredible, and of course, visually it was just, uh, you know, it was Chris just going crazy sometimes. You know, I would even point out like Richard Starkings, uh, you know, his letterer designer you know? And so what he was doing with lettering and design at the time was just, again, I feel like there's so much great lettering and design being done post 2000, but boy, at the time, the p- things were pretty dry. And boy, what Richard came in and said, Richard is an amazing guy, um, just came in and did, you know, that team, I already used the term alchemy, but boy, there was some crazy alchemy going on, I think, with Generation X early on. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really incredible. And to revisit that um it's hard to it's hard to remember how explosive and exciting it was you know because because we've sort of that that level of that has in sense has been seen repeatedly but it's it was quite exciting anyway so um when scott's workload was taking him away you know and his interest was taking away to everything and chris wanted to do other things or you know whatever and, and again i I don't think I don't think I'm wrong about any of that, but and I think Chris wanted to move over to the main book. I think at that point, I think we were maybe going to bring him over to Uncanny, and he was going to be the the artist of of the X Men books. But it was uh, I was the guy who brought James Robinson over. Okay, I knew James from working at DC. I really liked. Uh, oh God,
0: who uh, was his editor. Starman? Was like
1: a, yeah, Starman, and who's uh, who's uh, who the editor of Starman? Uh, it's like a legend, Archie Goodwin. So Archie Goodwin was just someone I idolized, and Archie was one of the best people in comics. Uh, and uh, James was amazing. You know, I got to meet James at a couple conventions, and I just thought, wow, this guy's outstanding. And of course, I loved everything he wrote. And, uh, and you know, he had never worked for Marvel before. And you know, I was like, listen, guys, you know, if we're losing Chris, what if we bring in James Robinson? You know, what about this guy? And so I kind was of pitching Bob, pitching Mark, and they were game. You know, they they saw the talent, they they saw the clear talent there, and they brought them over. And you know, coming into <laughs> coming into event driven comics, you know, the, like the top selling books as opposed to sort of what what's the word? I would almost be like craft comics, which more was what Starman, was, which was James. You're really creating most of that mythology whole claw. Yeah, know? yeah. James coming over and and really. You know, he was game and he did it. And, you know, but I don't think, it, look, it was never going to be his joy. You know, it was going to be something he, he could see if he could do, you know. Right. Um, coming onto the X Men is a bit like riding a wild bull, you know. <laughs> and uh, it was great. And, you know, he came on to, he also did cable at the time. And then we got Jose Ladrone to come on. Yeah. And then uh, and then James pitched Joe uh, Casey, uh, you know, as, as sort of someone he had discovered a little bit. And then. Uh, and then we launched the career of joe casey in mainstream comics that turned out pretty well yeah it certainly did for joe (laughs) (laughs) joe was a handful but uh you know (laughs) yo man i can write these comics with two hands pied behind my back (laughs) Oh, (laughs) oh joe casey
0: Joe Casey. He's
1: a rock star in his own mind. Yeah. He's, I mean, I look, I mean, look, he's, you know, he's had a long career and he deserves all his accolades.
0: So, what led to uh, Larry Hama coming on board?
1: I don't actually recall. I um, think they needed someone. And I think Larry was there. I think he'd been writing Wolverine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, boy. Um, how long was Larry writing the book? I don't even know.
0: It uh, was just about one year. He started okay. with issue 33. And then when did Jay Ferber start? It was around 45, I think, or something like that.
1: I, you know, honestly, like, I I just know Larry was, you know, Larry was always around, you know, he was already working it. And I have a feeling that that was a period, for good or ill, when you needed someone who was going to be able to come in and handle the rigors of all this, these moving parts of all the event shit, frankly, you know. Yeah. I mean, Larry is a, you know has been in the business. well at that time, been in the business, what, 30 years or something. You
0: know? Yep. Yep. A and time.
1: so, um, Larry, even then was pretty close to a living legend. He's damn well a living legend now. Yeah. But I have a feeling, you know, uh, and he and Mark had a great relationship. Well, I, I love Larry, but he was Mark's guy. Like Mark and he, you know, knew each other for years. Oh, okay. came so, um, I think that was really Mark just saying, okay, listen, what about Larry? And, uh, you know, and I didn't know any. I was like, sure, I don't know. it wasn't my decision. So, um, so Larry was brought in, and that was that. Wow. I can't, I can't speak to any of the moving parts of that because I really just don't remember. Because that was not that was not all during like Heroes were born and everything all that stuff. No, so. it
0: was after uh, Zero was after Tolerance, that. and so I think you had. Uh, okay, so here's a question for you: the the last issue that I can find that has you as um, an assistant editor is issue thirty seven. Okay. And then you come on board uh-huh. as editor for issue fifty one. So there's a blank period of time in there that you weren't working on Generation X, or or is that not is that correct?
1: Uh probably.
0: Yeah. It sounds
1: <laughs> it sounds weird. Um to, to me, I feel like, well, wouldn't it have been like is it possible? You know what? It's possible that Gen X moved out of our office. Like who was listed as editor on some of those Larry
0: Hammond? Frank. Oh, Frank Piterisi. Frank was Piterisi. He did that for, he was, yeah.
1: He was editing Jay, because he also hired Jay, right? Yes, Jay yep, was his guy. Yep, that's right. Yep. Okay, um, so I have a feeling maybe Generation X moved out of our office at that point. So that was sort of when the books were split between our office, Kelly Corvese's office, Jay Ferber's office, and I think even like Deadpool was with James Felder at the time. So we were much less, I mean, we weren't really directly involved in Gen X at that point, except for to try to you know put the connections together for things
0: does that mean does uh does it moving out of your office signal um just like lower sales so it doesn't get like the top tier kind of stuff there
1: i mean you know one could one could make that assumption i don't think we ever had conversations like that i think you know again this is this is me almost trying to invent history as a You know, it's it's hard for even even for me to remember. If you would have asked me, I would have said, "Oh, it was always in our office." And then when I was promoted, I just got the book. But that doesn't make sense because I do remember Frank editing that book. Um, So I suspect it was just a reshuffling at the time, and it was also at a time when, you know, because under when I when I was promoted, we really tried to bring all the books together. But I have a feeling things were just split to sort of let different creative voices have a shot at them. You know. And have different things. Does it speak to, I mean, I do, I will say this insofar as like Uncanny, X-Men, Wolverine, um, those books were always going to be staying in the main X office, as, as such as it is. You know. Those were, at the time, those were the books, right? Right. So if if there's some question of sales numbers reflecting, it's one thing, because one, I, I, I don't imagine cable was doing that much better than Gen X at that time. And I think that stayed in our office. I think Mark Powers really liked cable, so it may have been okay, you get this many books, which ones do you really want to work on? you know and you know and it's okay, and then Frank will work on this if he wants to you know take a shot at it, you know and so um, sometimes I'm sure these things were signed out, but I think that may have had something to do. I don't think it was, oh, that book's low selling, so we're going to shift it down the row. Um, I don't think there was ever anything quite like that,
0: okay, yeah. Let's talk about the greatest comic that Marvel Comics has ever published. <laughs> this is Generation X Underground Special. Yeah!
1: I all
0: can't right. tell you how much uh, this comic completely changed the way I viewed comics. Because at this age, uh. being, a, uh, being a teenager, I was like, you know, superheroes are just, that's all comics are. But this sure. this completely opened up the possibility to me that there are other genres out there. There's other mediums. There's other there's other ways to do comics. And I started following Jim Mafood at that time and, yeah. and discovered a whole ton of stuff. So how on earth did this come about? Because it's so completely different than anything Marvel was doing.
1: It's Yes, you're right about everything, Curtis. You're 100% right. The <laughs> best comic ever. Now, it's uh, this is a story that is as close to my heart as just about any story I could tell about Marvel Comics, about my time working on the X-Men. And, you know, it meant a lot to me. For me, I still look at it as creatively one of the best things I did while I was working in comics. Um, It it most reflected my desire to try to to stretch the medium while also trying to simplify it a little bit. You know, these are very difficult things. I was all game for crossovers and events. And, boy, I loved... I love the big things, you know, I love the broad, sweeping, big stories, the big tent poles we were doing, you know, these huge things. But at the same time, I could see that we were I mean, look, I I don't think I could have ever predicted where comics would go um, where you do these crazy like, you know, Hawkeye stories where he doesn't put on a costume or anything. You know, they're telling these great stories in the way they tell stories. now. It's fantastic. But I always felt there was something more, but I certainly didn't see Jim Mafu coming that said, Scott Lobdell is doing a doing a convention appearance. I want to say in Kansas City, maybe. He's at a he's at a convention in Kansas City, and you know sees this these young talented guys, right? And uh, Jim, uh, what's Jim's boy's name? Oh crap! Was um, also really good. He's, he, you see his stuff in Girl Scouts. Um, his name escapes me for some reason because he's also amazing. Anyway, so he sees the stuff, g- gathers up copies of Girl Scouts. Um, you know, and Jim's uh, stuff. And, you know, credit where credit is due. Um, Scott Dell says, Boy, we should do something with this guy. We should do like a G- we should do like an X Men project with this kid. And he may have even said Gen X, right? And that that didn't get very far. Like it was just sort of ignored. But of course, me being a little, you know, a little young assistant editor in the office, I was like, Wow, that stuff looks really cool. So I'm looking at it. I was like, Well, God, you know, this stuff is, there's so much energy here. There's so much going on. You know, this is, you know, I, like I wasn't a big indie comics guy. It's not like I was, you know, I wasn't reading. Uh, anyway, um, you know, but, but I really dug this stuff and I, you know, and I could see the talent and uh, I was like, oh, this is really cool. So, and I'm trying to remember the exact origin, whether I started pitching Bob and Mark on it right away. Cause I was only an assistant, you know, assistants aren't editing their own books, but I, I believe I asked and I, you know, I was sort of pretty loudmouth at the time in a lot of different ways. And, Took on more than a typical assistant editor at the time in many respects. At different times, um, so I said, "Listen, you know, what do you think about me sort of as a little side gig, trying to put together a one shot with this kid?" Oh, okay, yeah, you know. And it seems clear that Generation X should be like that. That that's I read these things, I could see some of his characters being some of the X Men and some of the Gen X characters. I right? just makes sense. It's, he's got the voice. If anyway you know, if anyone's going to have a voice of a teenager, it's this. Twenty-one year old artist. Maybe he was twenty at the time, you know. Yeah. Because wow. Jim was still Jim was still in art school, you know? Oh. And uh, yeah, he was still in art school, and uh, it was in Lawrence, Kansas. I think he was going to art school at the time. So I reached out to Jim, and Jim was cool, and we talked, and you know, I got I, I filled out a new project application, basically. What's oh, not an application? But a new project memo. Um, it got signed off on. I got a budget do 32 pages I think it was or something you know it's like 32 pages this is your rate we're gonna get Jim a page rate at Marvel got him a page rate got the book approved it wasn't put on the schedule and then uh, we proceeded to work on it Jim and I you know and I would sit on the phone late night with him he'd fax me things you know I would say like oh I love that but you know Jubilee can't smoke it's a Marvel comic you know he's got Jubilee (laughs) with a cigarette Jubilee can't be smoking Um, and things like that and you know, and there were these great little moments like, oh, Jim Moffitt had realized, he goes, I don't think Chamber has ever had a single conversation with, uh, was it Paige or Monet or somebody? You know, it was either
0: Paige or Monet. Oh, he had lots of conversations with Paige because they were like, Okay, so, yeah. oh,
1: right. Okay, yeah. So so maybe it was they'd never, like, he and Monet had never actually spoken words to each other. Okay. Well, wow, that's a great thing to notice. So he wanted to do a story of just the two of them. I think it's their Space Invaders story, if I recall. Yeah, right. I think they're playing Space Invaders. And I was like, okay. And, you know, it was all that sort of edgy, pop culturey stuff that I think now is fairly, fairly typical, but at the time, no one was really doing. And, you know, it's just like, oh, you know, like he did this sort of like a Charlie's Angels thing. Oh, we'll do Banshee's Angels. And it's like, I love the bootleg things. Let's do bootleg stuff in here. and and uh, And it was all sort of slowly birthed and developed, uh, really after hours like I would get on the phone with him at the end of his school day or whatever you know and then at the, in the evenings he would fax me things I'd be seeing in my Marvel office after I wouldn't gone at like 7 o'clock at night because I had no life you know I'm talking to Jim Moffitt because it was like as much as I loved working on the other stuff that was my favorite thing at that point right yeah and it was also there was no pressure that wasn't on the schedule so this was if, if every comic project had no deadlines you know it'd be beautiful right you have no deadlines you just get to work with the guy and you get to come up with stuff and you get it when it gets done, right? Because Jim was doing everything. He was penciling, inking, lettering, the whole thing. And it took about a year to do the 32 pages. Oh, you know, wow. All told. Yeah. Because normally you crank the heck of stuff out in like six weeks. But yeah. no, so there was time. And there were little lessons, you know. And I talked about what being like an editor is like being a head coach. I, I You know, it's something that Jim actually reminded me of like later on. We're having a conversation about one of the stories. And I said, you know – i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you something jim because a lot of his i said at the time now this was not i don't think in the final book but i said there were two characters and it might have been the might have been the monet and Chamber story but it might have been something else i said if you get rid of all the pictures can you tell who's talking right because i said you you really got to make sure that each character has their own voice right now they're all sort of witty jim mafu voice right you know they're all this fucking great dialog but it's, it, you know, you can't actually tell which character is which without looking at the picture. Hmm. Right? So I said, go back and really think about how these characters sound, what makes them unique, you know. And, you know, it is, it's one of the lessons that I imparted to him. It was imparted to me, I'm sure, by someone like Archie Goodwin, you know what I mean? So th- those are the sort of things, you know, it's almost like sometimes an editor is just like, oh, it's, it's like taking you to batting practice, you know. Let's work on your stance, you know. But I remember that specific conversation was, hey, man, you know, it's just like, let's think about how these characters speak and how they're different, you know, because if you can if you can switch their voices, then you're not really writing that character, man, you know, and then he really absorbed that. And really just, you know, owned that and sort of went with it. And then there were things like, oh, you know, I suppose the thing that I push for the most that I just selfishly wanted him to do, I said, because, you know, it was it was great because it was a book of gags, right? You could sort of do these little because it was a bunch of short stories yeah. and little one page gags like the bootleg trading cards, you know, and the I bootleg iron on. Yeah, the bootleg trading cards, the bootleg iron on, you know, and uh, I said, listen, we got to do a twink ad yeah, because i'm obsessed with these fucking <laughs> Twinkie ads from the 70s i like right. grew up in them and so you know i don't think he knew them as well because he was a, bit, a little younger than me not super young you know i don't think he is but he was like okay man i can i can dig it i can dig it and so we're going i was like and he came up with this idea it's like oh it's generation versus generation, it's the beat generation versus generation i was like fucking blew my mind yeah was, I was like, so that's, good that's perfect That's <laughs> perfect and so he he went to town it's the one it's the one page of original Jim Mafood art that I own. Oh, that nice! I that Twinkie, because I was like, "Listen, you got to sell me that art." He just gave it to me. Too. <laughs> um, and I was, as a rule, I didn't ask my artists, but my, from the people who worked for me, but that one, I, I felt I had done. Now, the the backstory of that was, um, I was, you know, I was, I was a little flighty person at Marvel, and the fact that I went around, I love, I love meeting everybody in the company, and I, I had struck up a pretty good friendship with our head of legal counsel, right. And, you know, I was doing a little reading about, like, parody law. Okay. And I was thinking, well, can, can we get away with this? You know, And she goes, well, can't you just call them Winkies instead of Twinkies? And I was like, look, I've read the parody law. If it's clearly a parody, we can actually use the name. It doesn't matter. Like, if it's clearly not an actual Twinkie and it's a parody, it's okay. And she finally relented. She finally relented and signed off on us doing an ad. Like they're fucking Twinkies right in there, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. We don't we don't make the Twinkies look bad. We are as nice to Twinkies as the original ads were. Oh right? sure. we Literally, it's a fucking Twinkie ad that Hostess had nothing to do with. They didn't approve it. They didn't sign off on it. We all got it through <laughs> for parody law and the fact that we showed them in a good light. So everybody wins. Jason got his dream Twinkie ad. I finally got to work on a Twinkie ad, and you know Hostess got a free ad. And we got, and Jim came up with this great beat generation versus uh, the generation x now i think part of the inspiration was in lawrence kansas one of the original beats lived and so they occasionally came his art school buddies would see the guy at this diner and i think it was ginsburg i think ginsburg lived in lawrence kansas okay and so i think i think his awareness of ginsburg being living in the town having seen him and being aware of the beat culture because of that um that may have inspired the Generation X to B Generation, you know, with their espresso cannon, you <laughs> yeah. know, and all that shit. Um, God, I forgot, you know, it's funny just talking about it reminds me how much fun it was. And how I love looking back at all that stuff. It's, uh, so when we talked about a cover, you know, cover design, I was like, listen, man, let's just let's try to get because I talked to our, our production people and I took them Girl Scouts. And I said, listen, can we do a cover stock like this thick sort of, you know, matte not mm-hmm. glossy, not like some glossy fucking hologram shit. I said, can we just do a matte cover with just two spot colors, like a blue and a yellow, nice. just like this, like exactly like this color. Yeah. And they said they think they could. You know, we talked to our printers, whatever. Yes, they sourced something similar. And I went back to Jim, and it's like, listen, man, just fucking steal the design of Girl Scout's issue, whatever, two or three or whatever it was. I said, basically do that design. I want it to feel like your book, you know, as much as possible. And I think that was sort of the through I said, don't try to do what you think a Marvel comic is just do your book, man. And just do these characters, you know? And so, and it was, I don't know, man, it was so much fun. And, uh, Jim, you know, J- Jim was such a cool dude and such a great young artist. And, uh, and I'll never forget, you know, it's like his first San Diego. Like I think I got a, ba- a badge to San Diego. When you're Marvel, you just basically go to the people at that point in San Diego and say, can I have 10 more badges, put these names on them. <laughs> And, uh, but Jim slept on my floor you know, I had a Marvel room, but Jim slept on my floor because, you know, he's an art school kid, right? But he came out to San Diego. This is right before I think Gen X Underground came out. And probably one of the neatest things I I had the opportunity to do was hire Jim, work with Jim, and then get to give Jim to the world and say, look at this great talent. And I told him, you know, and I said, listen, man, I said, I go, you, you're working on an X-Men book. Now, it's made, not an ordinary X-Men book, but it's still the X-Men. And it's going to go out to every comic store in America. And I said, you know, you're having fun in San Diego, but after this book comes out, everything's going to change, right? Hmm. And a year later, of course, you know, Generation X comes out. He's talking to the guys at Oni Press. He gets clerks. You know, he's hanging out. So the following year, we're at San Diego, and he's like, dude, remember that conversation? I remember the conversation. He's like, remember that conversation you said last year where everything's going to change? He goes, yeah, man, I'm hanging out with Kevin Smith. We're going to, Z, there's lines. You know. I was like, well, that's fucking great. You know, couldn't happen to a better guy. Yeah. His, and I see Jim, you know, every year at New York Comic Con. And, you know, it's uh, like, I am not responsible for his talent. I am not responsible for his career. But the fact that I helped nudge him along Onto where his talent was ultimately going to take him, I believe, anyway. The fact that I got to be a part of that and I got to help usher him into that world is something that is just a great, is a great source of joy for me, you know. And it's a, it's a very, it's just a really good feeling to have, and and a, and a great feeling to see how well he's done and everything he's done because the guy, you know, is talented. He's just really that good. Well, yeah. What else? Uh, I'll tell you another really fun story, and this was. You know DC Comics, Marvel Comics is a little more loosey goosey than DC. DC everything was, you know, the, all books had to be scheduled months ahead, and you know and they had weekly editorial meetings with Paul Levitz and everything. You know, and Marvel was a li- was a, just a little more improvisational, we'll call it. Right, um, And I think it still is, you know, but with within reason. Obviously, we're having those creative conversations, it, but again, it, it's not. They're, they were different psychologically companies at the time, right? yeah and you know paul levitz i think drove a lot of that at dc but anyway so um paul levitz uh they're having the weekly editorial meeting and paul levitz walks in now i i was not in this meeting okay so okay. but this story was told to me by a legend in the business who worked for both dc and marvel who was a friend i'm not going to name him because i don't want like, to like you say these stonefalls at school. yeah but so paul levitz after gen x underground comes out he walks into this meeting. He walks into the editorial meeting with Gen X Underground in his hand. At the DC editorial meeting. And all the DC editors are sitting around. And he holds up the book. He holds up, you know, Jim Jim's little, uh, you know, the book I, my little Gen X Underground book. Yeah. And he says, he goes, for the first time in over a decade, he goes, Marvel Comics has scooped us stylistically. And he goes, they've never done it, not in the last 10 years. He goes, but this time they did it. And wow. he goes, we should have we should have done this first. And, and that was, you know, that was a moment of, because, you know, look, DC had Vertigo. They had, what was the other thing that they right. did, the big books? They had Vertigo and they had another publishing imprint uh, that was doing, Paradox. Uh, you know, weird. Paradox, right. Paradox yeah. Press, right. They were doing little digest and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they were doing, you know, they, they were really pushing that envelope, but Marvel was going on about doing, you know, foil covers and you know, X-Men crossovers and events and all this other stuff. And so when that got back to me, you know, I mean, look, I felt like I'd won an Oscar, you know? Yeah. Because I was like, you know, when you're trying to, when you're trying to do something cool and fun um, that that honors the characters, that honors the medium and everything else, honors the creator, honors the fans – you hope you do something you know that that isn't just the same, you know you're not regurgitating out the same sh- stuff every month you know week after week, et cetera et cetera, and so with that, um I was deeply proud of what we did, you know the way we went about it, and certainly the the, the, the output of it you know um what what it what it became but then hearing from Paul Levitz, this guy I have a tremendous amount of respect for the competitors right the 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 distinguished you know competition yeah yeah, for sure uh say that man that was the biggest compliment i could have heard yeah you know? and i look obviously i still tell the story you know i'm like the old guy and uh was a bowl rocky and bowling oh I don't remember what <laughs> you know paul Nevitz went in and said it was the the first time they had stylistically scooped us in 10 years that was me
0: <laughs> um, that was my project yep that's right
1: and so it was a so it was a great pleasure and it was it was it was, it was you know quite frankly it was just thrilling it was thrilling and of course I shared that with Jim and Jim you know, couldn't believe it and stuff. It was a, yeah, it was a, it was a, you know, it was a book that I think maybe in some ways was a little ahead of its time, you know, because boy, if it, if it had sold like 150,000 or whatever copies or whatever, whatever a, a big hit meant, like if it was number one, um, they would have said, get back to work on an ongoing series with Jim Muff, you
0: know what I mean? Hmm, yeah. And
1: with these kind of covers, that's what they would have done. Um, but it sold okay. You know, well, it certainly didn't lose money. And then Jim went on to do, I know some stuff. I think for Tom Brevoort later on, or Ralph uh, Macchio. Um, but you know, I mean, he you know he's had his career ever since, and he does his own thing. Yeah, and all the better. Um, but yeah, so and you know he's like I see him now sitting next to um, uh, Bill Skarvech. You know, it's like and those guys are friends, and they you know they they their their artistic lives have sort of you know crossed over with each other. I'm like, you know, it's just it's freaking awesome. Man, it is. You know? Uh, yeah, so Gen X Underground, absolutely greatest comic Marvels ever published. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Couldn't agree with you more. When you know, when you work on something like that, you know, because I really cared about those characters and those books, and uh, you know, I really liked Jim personally, and I just loved his artwork, and I loved what he was doing, and the fact that we were able to pull it off. You know, I mean, the whole thing was very much like sheer force of will. Look, it was Scott Abdell. Without Scott Abdell I would have never even heard of Jim Mafood, but then. You know, me just sort of charming my way into letting them let me do it.
0: You know? Yeah, yeah.
1: And you know, those guys, those guys believed in me. Bob believed in me. Mark believed in me, and stuff. And you know, the head of legal, you know, affairs believed in me. Apparently, <laughs> no, but you know, it, it was uh, it was really just fun. And if you've never, I don't know, worked at Marvel Comics, or you've never made a comic, and you imagine what the fun that it can be you know, or and it's, and you're thinking on the far end of like the fun spectrum and the satisfaction spectrum, this was that experience yeah, without yeah. a doubt, right. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, and I think the joy came through in the pages, um, you know, and it's, uh, yeah. And it, you know, you don't always have that freedom. You don't always have the freedom of having 12 months to put together 32 pages, you know, yeah, right. you know unless you're Joe Quesada working on Daredevil. <laughs> go, go. <laughs> I can't, I can't. Uh,
0: now, so there's one letter page in a in a uh, Generation X comic that came out, I don't know, sometime after this that says that there's going to be a follow-up. Look for the follow-up coming soon or something like that. Jesus, really? Did yeah, I say that? I think so. <laughs> uh, or or Mark did or somebody. And uh, But it never happened. Was, was there a plan wow. to have a follow-up?
1: You know, look, I- I'm sure I wanted to do one. Yeah. I mean, there, there there can be no doubt about it. I'm sure Jim and I talked about it. But I feel like you know, sales were not great. Sales, like I said, sales were what they were. And I also think, boy, he got snapped up by Oni to work on Clerks. And then right. he was Clerks for a while.
0: Yeah. Yep. You know? yep.
1: Um, I think he was, God, I think he may have even done, like, designs for, like, the animated series and stuff. So he was very quickly snapped up. Now, I'm not saying that's why. And then, then you know, uh, again, there was so much going on. There were there was another round of layoffs. Um, you know, I got promoted. We we joined all the Xbox back together, and then it was the bankruptcy and dealing with. You know, there were like I don't know, there were like something like nine presidents during my five years of Marvel. Oh, you, know? And, you know, and so each president brought in their own agenda, their own deals, which they would then protect. Heroes were born <coughs> cough cough, right. so that they would look good, so that they could remain president. Sounds funny, but it's true. You know, and I also fought to try to get the heroes back after during Heroes Reborn, because there was a time when there were rumors. Well, rumors. There were editors at Wildstorm telling their artists that they were going to get the X Men next. And when I got really? that piece of news, like, yeah, no, yeah, this is true. And because Jim Lee was probably like, hey, why don't I take the X Men for a year next or permanently? Yeah it isn't talked about a lot, but there were rumors that Marvel was going to stop publishing comics and they were just going to do like they did with the toys. They were just going to license the characters to other publishers. Right. Wow. And uh, cause you know, they were looking at, I mean, they you know, they, there were a lot of bad decision makers at the upper echelon of beyond. I'm not talking about editorial. I'm talking about like the business affairs people. Right. Yeah. They're making a lot of bad decisions. And I, you know, I, I don't know. It's You'd think I used to think, before working you know marvel comics and dc comics that well if you're a corporate executive you must be a genius by default by default well that was (laughs) you know no i was like because how else do you become that right you have to be smart you have to make great decisions as it turns out not necessarily true right (laughs) (laughs) not necessarily true people you know you can you can get to be a powerful position by not necessarily being the smartest person in the room there's other ways yeah uh, yeah,
0: as it turns out. Anyway, I didn't go to very many conventions or anything like that. But when Jim Mafu came to Vancouver, uh, which is where yeah. I am, uh, I made a huge effort to go uh, and brought that comic. He signed it and he drew me a picture to go along with nice. it. And it nice. is it is a prized possession because it's it, this seriously is my. Uh, favorite thing that Marvel has ever wow. published. <laughs>
1: wow, it's you know when we because a lot of times I'll just stand by him while he's you know talking to people, whatever, and people you know I'll be behind his table at New York Comic Con just because I you know I love seeing the kid. Well, it's not a kid, but anyway, I love seeing the guy. And like people come up occasionally and they'll talk about Generations Underground, and of course they go, "Well, this is the guy. This is why it happened." And they're like you know, like, hey. and uh, but it is. It's it's. Uh, it's look it's deeply it's deeply humbling uh, to hear how much it meant to people because it look it meant that to me too in a different way but it certainly meant everything to me you know i do treasure that experience you know like i said you go through life trying to do things you know and i've i've worked on a lot of creative things in my day both in and out of comics and you hope that all the pieces come together and sometimes they do and as my, you know, as my comic, uh, you know, as all the, <laughs> you, you're pretty good researcher. All my name's a lot of comics. They don't all turn out great, you know, right. and uh, they don't all turn out the way you wanted. And sometimes you think you know what you're doing, and sometimes you, you kind of shit the bed and you, you, come up with a crappy thing. But with that, um, it really was, it just really came out, and it's, uh, it's, it's awfully nice. To hear how much it meant to you, because it definitely meant a lot to
0: me. Excellent. Well, I thank you for your efforts and uh, going the extra mile to 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 get that done. That's just incredible. yeah, man.
1: Yeah, yeah I was a, I was kind of a I didn't I didn't believe in
0: existing rules, so I
1: just said maybe we can do this. Who cares that I'm insistent?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and now Marvel does this kind of stuff um, on a regular basis too. Like you can you can uh, not to this same great effect, in my opinion, but like they just released a Christmas special. Yeah, X Men yeah. Christmas special, um, right. where every page was done by a different guy, and it had a lot of. A lot of it was funny, and um, it, I don't know. It was a, I could see them thinking outside the box in the same way that you were thinking outside the box for this one here.
1: Having not worked in the business directly, I mean, I've consulted with some friends, uh, uh, my buddy's desperate to publish anyway. But you know, having not really worked in the business and not really being an active comic creator anymore they look the the industry has evolved and embraced i mean more than anything my god comics in the 90s when i worked there it's like they just weren't funny you know right and humor i mean fuck funny books are funny again humor is all laced all throughout yeah yeah. you know and that's not because of the movies i mean that predates the movies but look look at the marvel movies the reason why they work is that humor is in there totally absolutely I remember watching that first Avengers, Joss Whedon's Avengers movie, and that moment when the Hulk punches Thor, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I often, I often say this. I often say this. I said, you know, if I was still at Marvel and I was somehow now working in the film part and I was whatever some executive or some executive's assistant, and I would have seen that that pitch, right? Joss Whedon, I'm going to have Hulk punch Thor. It's going to just fly off screen. I'd have been like, what the fuck are you talking about? That's like Looney Tunes, man. <laughs> yeah. You're going to take, you're going to take people out of the movie. It's not a cartoon. You know, this has been a big movie, the, the build up of five or six other movies before. It. I said that's dumb, man. It's not going to work. I would have been 10,000% wrong. Yeah, right. But I know that I know that's what I would have said. You know, and I would have been wrong because that moment didn't take anyone out of it. It, it literally seemed so in character and it felt so oddly real, you know. It and it's what, my God, audiences who'd never picked up a comic in their life, they loved that moment. It made them love all those characters so much more. Yeah. And when I hear, you know, when I see the moments in comics now, I hear about how they handle things, you know, and there is so much more humor. The, the, the comics are, I mean, you know, what did I just watch? The, you know, when well, you look at just what they've done with Spider Man and everything else, and, you know, Spider Man was quippy and everything else, but, you know, these, and certainly what Deadpool has become. You know, Deadpool started out as sort of like, you know, an assassin Spider Man, right? But once Joe Kelly got his hands on him, and they started, and you know, they, they decided to do that issue where he goes back in time. I remember this was crazy at the time. He goes back into an old issue of Spider-Man, and they basically used old Spider-Man pages and just drew Deadpool into them and yep. changed the dialogue. You know, that kind of stuff was insane. So the break once Deadpool started breaking the fourth wall, um, Rob Liefeld definitely created Deadpool, but boy, and I, I know that he does but he owes so much to the guys who took Deadpool and decided, wait a second, he's just a Spider-Man assassin. No, he's going to become this other thing. And these guys, Joe Kelly and these guys, they, they infused Deadpool with this other thing that made him what he is. Because otherwise he was just Shatterstar, but with a cooler costume, and right. a better attitude. <laughs> but he's become the, by becoming this other thing, but no humor, you know, the references, I mean, I don't think generation X underground influenced the business, but I do think it pre, it, it was pre, it was a bit precognitive, a yes. little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because people of Jim's generation came in, and the awareness that you can do that kind of stuff in a Marvel comic and a DC comic or whatever, and have fun with it, um, and it's just the kind of humor people like. It's how people like to absorb these characters. they like because everyone's witty now, yeah. And why wouldn't these characters be the same? They're not all stern jaws, you know, with all the seriousness. So no, it's it's uh, it's wonderful, and uh, yeah, it's great.
0: Yeah, well, you, you know what? Yeah. We've been talking for an hour now. And wow. we, ha- we haven't even gotten to the part where you're actually the editor of Generation X. Yeah So what I would love to do is we could talk about this forever, and I would love to. Okay. But I think we should split this into two different episodes okay. so that we can have your pre-editor Gen X stuff and your post-editor Gen X stuff. I, I've been finding this fascinating. The behind-the-scenes stuff is just so interesting. And, a, and I, I want to be able to give us ample time to be able to because I'm really interested in this Counter X stuff as well really interested so, cool um, awesome yeah let's let's pause it here and uh, and resume our conversation another time
1: that sounds great Curtis this was uh,
0: this is more f- I thought I knew
1: this was going to be fun but this is even more fun than I thought
0: good so, I'm glad so. awesome yeah this is great, great. This is great.